0: Good morning. The reading today is taken from the first book of Corinthians. Beginning at the 15th chapter, I will read verses 20 through 26, and then I will pick up again at verse 51 through 58. The reading is found on page 4 of the bulletin, if you would like to follow along. <clears throat> But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But to each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him, then will come the end when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and my dear sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.
1: We are continuing today in a series that we started uh, last Sunday on Easter Sunday, a series of uh, five weeks on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter for five weeks, as it were. Um, and really, what we're doing is an in depth study of one chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, the most, most in depth and detailed explanation of the resurrection of Jesus. And what we're looking at is how the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead isn't just simply relevant to daily life, but rather if we get it rightly and if we embrace it and if we see all the implications of it, the resurrection of Jesus ought to revolutionize daily life. How? Last week we looked at the way that the resurrection offers us A guarantee for a guilt-free life. Today we're on to a second topic. Let's take a look. Let me pray, though. Let me pray first. God, thank You for this time for us to ponder the resurrection of Christ again. And we know we come from different places and backgrounds, some of us highly skeptical that such a thing could ever happen. And others of us that have embraced it but still have questions as to its impact in our lives. We pray for all of us that you would speak to us. And that you would affect us. And that you would change something, something in our lives. For your glory. Your glory, the resurrected Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I... uh, I was pondering a statement in the New Testament that caught my attention. It came and it comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. And it seemed like a very profound and bold statement, and this is what it says. That Jesus died to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This profound statement that all of us in some way or another live our lives enslaved, gripped by, even controlled by, the fear of death. Is that really true? So pondering that and thinking through that and trying to see the different parts of my life, of your life, in which we see Not only death itself, but also the lingering effects of death, the long tentacles of death that really do hold us in bondage. Whether if it's the the fear of losing a loved one, or actually losing a loved one. This fear which I I feel like I've been grappling with more in the last year than ever since the birth of my daughter Elena. The funny little ways in which I find myself from the day she was born sneaking back up to the crib and sort of putting a finger underneath her nose just to make sure that she's still breathing. And all the ways that the smallest things can just set off a whole evening of paranoia, the fear of death, the fear of losing people, relationships, the way in which you see our society so deeply terrified even of aging, which is really simply the road towards death, the way in which I see that even in my own life, the amount of energy and time that, yes, I do find myself spending, examining my hairline. And wondering where we're headed together over time. Where is this journey further and further back taking us? Is there something like that in your life? Your body's falling apart. It doesn't look like what you think it ought to. And the world around you isn't going to console you in any other way. Or I wonder if the fear of death is the reason. Or I think it is the reason, partly, then the the reason why the American middle class ended up abandoning cities, including Washington D.C. in decades past. Why the fear of crime, the fear of safety, the longing for a place that was more peaceful, more settled. And I'm not saying it's wrong to desire that in and of itself. But you see the way in which the fear of death and its effects even shape where we live in our daily patterns, and where we walk, and what we do. The ways in which the prospect of death, either far away or maybe not too far away, and that's the fear, makes us more frenetic about what we do day to day. And where we try to squeeze more into life or make more life more meaningful and I need to justify my existence and I only have 60 or 70 or 80 years or 20 or 30 as the case may be to be someone or be something or become something. And so we drive and drive and drive ourselves and we don't always realize that yes, yes, sometimes it is the fear of death. Last week we posed the central question, how different would your life, would my life be if we were finally free of the power of guilt? The question today is what would our lives be like if we were free or at least gradually becoming more free from the slavery of the fear of death? What would life be like? Can you imagine it? And can you imagine how radical and revolutionary even life might be like if this were something we started to grapple with. What could daily life be like if we began to believe a passage like today's which tells us that when He died and rose again from the grave, that Jesus stuck a dagger into the heart of death itself, and that one day, someday, death itself will die. Amen. Can you imagine believing it? And what we're going to look at here, first of all, is just the the ways in which we really can start to find a radically new attitude towards death start to be formed within us if we believe three truths about death that we see in this passage. And then we'll talk about some of its implications. Three truths about death that might give us a radically new attitude about death. First of all, that death is an enemy. Second of all, that death is defeated by a death. And thirdly, that death one day will die. So first of all, death is an enemy. You know, even though death is universal... Right, every single person on this planet dies. It's universal. The Bible actually tells us that there is nothing natural or normal about the experience and the reality of death. Death is, as one theologian put it, an alien inimical power. It is not the way life was meant to be or designed to be By God. You know, sometimes we try to cope with death by telling ourselves that it's natural. Or we use phrases like natural cause of death or died of natural causes. But what we sometimes fail to realize, which the Bible helps us to understand, is that physical death actually is a terrible violence to our created human nature. That physical death is is a violent ripping apart of our body from our souls, and it was not and is not the way it was meant to be. And not just the physical violence of it all, but the relational violence of losing relationships that were and are meant to be forever. Paul reminds us in verses 25 and 26 here, That death is an enemy. He says the last enemy to to be destroyed by God and Jesus is death. Death is an enemy. God is hostile towards death. We are called to be hostile towards death. God hates death. It's His enemy. We have this language that we use all throughout society, the war on poverty or the war on drugs. Did you know that God is so concerned here that He has initiated what you might call a war on death? Jesus Himself spoke of His fury against death. John 11, when He was confronted with the death of a dear friend, Lazarus, sister Mary and Martha, mourning over the loss of their brother, and we see Jesus, he eventually raises him from the dead. But what is Jesus' primary emotion during this encounter? Well, John 11 uses a word, a, a verb that means to be deeply moved by anger towards death. Death is God's enemy, and therefore God is committed to defeat this enemy even by the death of His own Son. Do you know a God like this who doesn't just wink and blink or turn His head away from the reality of death, but who is willing to give up everything, even His own Son, in order to deal with death once and for all? No other religion truly engages the reality of death like the Christian Bible and story does. But we've already gotten to the second point, the second truth, which is that death is defeated by a death. In verse 56, towards the end here, we're told that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, here we're reminded that death is bad because it's got a stinger, and that is sin. It's sin that makes death a horror, it's sin that makes death a poison a sting. I grew up most of my childhood in the desert out in California about two hours from LA. I call it the high desert. Town's called Victorville. And it really is a desert. talk to people sometimes and I say, hey, look, I grew up in the desert. They say, what do you mean by desert? Well, you got like cactus and tumbleweeds? Yes! Cactus and tumbleweeds and dirt. Lots of it. Hot sun. And scorpions black widows, and rattlesnakes. And I was just thinking about how much growing up in the desert, this was just a normal part of reality. Just the ways in which every time as a kid I would go into the garage to look for a ball or get my bike out of it or to rummage through the boxes, how much I was very aware of the sting and the poison of these little critters, these creatures. Rattlesnake finding one of these behind a box. It happened. Black widows everywhere in the corner. Scorpions cocking its tail ready to sting. What we're told is here in this passage the sting of death, what makes it so ugly, what makes it so terrifying, what makes it so fearful is sin. Did you realize that death entered the world because of sin, as a consequence of, and as a punishment for, rebellion against God by the first person, the first representative of humanity, Adam, who's referenced here in this passage? In other words, Adam, and this Adam's heart is still in every one of our hearts, said, look, I don't want to have anything to do with you, God. I've got this on my own. I'll be my own God. I'll be my own provider. I'll be perfectly self-sufficient. No, thank you. Don't need your help. Do you hear it in yourself? Not realizing that like a plant needs the sun for life, and if you stick it in a dark cave, it will die That when you shun God and step away from Him, all of life starts to disintegrate and fall apart, even ourselves physically. Even our bodies. And this is the curse of death that came out of that sort of rebellion where God said, look, I don't want it to be this way, but justice is such that you will get what you've asked for, distance and dissociation from me. And you will disintegrate slowly but surely and even unto your bodies. Death entered this world as a part of sin. And Paul tells us in verse 21 and 22, Just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Which is why when God wanted to come up with a plan and a way in which to redeem humanity, to forgive us, to give us new life, to give us a new beginning and a new relationship with Him, what did He have to do but to exhaust that penalty of our sin. Not only having His Son Jesus suffer in our place the very experience of hell that every one of us deserve, hell simply being infinite separation from the God of glory and truth and beauty. But not only that suffering on the cross, but also finally dying, because death is the wage, the price of our sin. Now resurrection comes into the world through a new representative of the human race, a new Adam, who's getting it right, finally. And his name is Jesus. The risen Jesus. The one who gives us new life. Do you see, friends, on the cross and in the grave, the death and the suffering of Jesus... God himself absorbed the sting and the poison of death. So there's no more poison left to be injected into your soul. And no more stinger to be a threat to you. Yes, it's ugly. And in some ways, scary. Like a tailless scorpion doesn't make you want to pet it. Or a rattleless or a defanged rattlesnake. Doesn't, well, some of you have snakes for pets, maybe. Doesn't make you want to wrap one around your neck. Doesn't mean you love it. But it does mean that death once was this ugly, terrifying doorway into the judgment of God. But when Jesus takes your judgment for your sins, death is defanged and simply becomes a doorway into the perfect presence of infinite and eternal joy in the presence of God, your Father, whom you love and not just fear. A doorway to life now. And not just a doorway to judgment. Death is defeated, but it's defeated by a death 2,000 years ago. And the repercussions and the powers of this continue to reverberate in reality even today into our lives, but on into the future, which brings us to the third truth. And it's this, that death one day, someday, will die not just defanged or de-stingered or de-whatever not just defeated and not just have a mortal blow stuck into its heart but one day it will be dead finally and forever death will be no more verse 54 then one day when christ returns the saying that is written will come true He's quoting Isaiah 25 here. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Literally, death has been drowned in the victory of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It has no more ultimate power over those who belong to Jesus even now. But one day, it will be true that death is fierce and frightful, but it is not final. Death one day will be destroyed. And this is what Paul's argument, the dense, thick argument that maybe lost you in this passage, is really getting at. That Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago was not an isolated event once upon a time ago, not just this funky freak show that was meant to dazzle us and confuse us for thousands of years and debate and talk about whether or not it actually happened. But rather, Jesus' resurrection was meant to be a guarantee that more of the same is on its way. And Paul gets at this idea by using the language of first fruits. In verse 20, we're told that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 22 and 23, in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. What are first fruits? A couple years ago, Paula and I, no, really, I got to give Paula credit for this, wanted to start a garden. But we got no place to start a garden. We've got a metal stoop on our front door with no dirt. And so we said, let's put out some little pots and maybe we'll start some herbs and maybe we'll do some tomatoes and maybe we'll do this and that. And it was a wonderful experiment that was full of frustration and joy and all the rest. And one of Paula's biggest projects, the one that gave her the most heartache and the most joy, was the project of trying to grow tomatoes. And we were greatly concerned because we had heard in this area, a lot of tomatoes don't grow. I guess there's some funky thing in the air that kind of just kills off your tomatoes. I don't know. Some of you may know better. You're better gardeners than we are, as the story may show. <laughs> Planted those tomatoes in these pots. We're so excited when one day the shoot comes up, starts to grow, and it's like jacking the beanstalk out of control, right? stock is growing, really excited one day when the little green buds kind of pop up. One here, one there, until finally we notice they start turning orange and then red. And we're touching them every day. We pass by and checking up on them until finally the first few, the first few that were soft and supple and bright red, we said, we've got to try one. So we knock a couple off. Put them in a bowl. We sit down to eat them. And they were so good. And I hate tomatoes. (laughs) But they were so... I said, look, if I like this tomato, I would like this. Uh, It was so good. Better than a grocery store tomato. Enjoying them. But what made us the most excited is we looked out back at that bush, which was seriously by now this big and this tall, like wild. We said, look, This is just the beginning. There's more of what was started that's coming. More little red cherry tomatoes. It was our first fruits, but what was it? It was a guarantee, an assurance that more of the same, not blackberries, not apples, but more tomatoes were coming. Not now, but someday soon. Because the first fruits are an early preview, an early foretaste, an early flash of what more is to come. And this is what Paul says Jesus' resurrection is. Not an isolated event, but just a preview of what is to come. A great harvest of more tomatoes. Spiritual tomatoes, no. Resurrection. People who are united to Jesus, who belong to Jesus by faith, who themselves, just like Jesus was given a new body raised from the dead, will be raised from the dead. Indestructibly, a deathless life in an undecaying body, which Paul talks about in the middle of this passage. This idea of immortality and perishability being replaced and overclothed by immortality and imperishability. More of the same that is to come, not yet now, but one day soon in the future, Paul tells us, when Jesus comes and returns. This language of the trumpet sounding, his victorious return, when all that he had purchased on the cross in his resurrection would finally be fully cashed in on. New life for people, first fruits. And it's a promise. And it's a guarantee. It's meant to assure your hearts because you see in Jesus' resurrection a little window into your future if you belong to Jesus. One day, someday, death will die. And be overwhelmed by a new life, a perfected body, a perfected creation. All things indestructible as they were really meant to be. Body and soul reunited. And in relationship with those whom we lost... Forever experiencing and sharing the joy which was meant to shared, which we were created to share first and foremost with God, our Maker and our Redeemer, but also secondarily, but not, not powerfully, certainly powerfully shared also with those around us. Jesus is a first fruits. And let me close with two implications of what this might mean for us today. You notice here that Paul, all throughout the bottom part of the passage, talks about the resurrection of Jesus therefore being victory, a triumph, winning the war. Verse 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Verse 57, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does victory in death, even today, in light of these truths, look like? Two things. Number one, victorious grieving. Victorious grieving. See, you might ask, does this Christian view of death and the defeat of death and the death of death one day does it mean that you start pretending like death is no big deal? Or you start to treat death as if it's a friend? No, it is an enemy, right? We talked about that. It's right to hate losing someone that you love. It is right and biblical and faith-filled to hate the violence and the loss of life done to our neighborhood youth and among our neighborhood youth. It is right to hate death, friends, and to bawl your eyes out when your life is afflicted by death. That's a faith response that this passage gives us permission for. It enables us not to be in denial, right? Because you know that there's victory in the end so you can actually confront and stare death truly in the face and grieve honestly with tears, with heartache to grieve and to grieve well but to grieve differently that is, victoriously that is, with hope. To know that death is not The end of the story for those who belong to Jesus. And as we're told in 1 Thessalonians that we can grieve but not as those who do not have hope but those who actually have the hope of the death of death and to be able to grieve victoriously with other people as well in community. How important it is, friends, in response to this to be energized and maybe softened in heart to learn as a church community how to grieve with one another in the face of death. To learn how to pick each other off the ground when encountering death. And be able to do that with tearful victory in our hearts. Why? Because we have a story That tells us about what happens to death in the end. We have an account. We have a promise. We have a future. And so we can be a church, a community that isn't afraid to face death together. And to do it with one another. Because look, if you've been there recently and we have as a church together, it can be such a disorienting time for people. We need each other in those moments being a community that grieves together, hopes together, and not only just the hope that we'll be reunited with those whom we've lost, whom we've loved, who know the love of Jesus, but also reminding each other again and again and again that one day, someday, dear grieving friends, death will die. One day, someday. And to be able to say to one another with the authority of God's Word, no, dear grieving friends, you're you're not going nuts. This is terrible. This is terrible. And no, it's not going to go away immediately, the pain and the sorrow of the loss. But you can say, your brother that you lost, you're going to see him again one day. Your brother that you miss, he's going to be raised to life one day. He is. And you together with him. And you together with him. In a new creation. With a new hope. With an indestructible life. With undecaying, non-dying bodies. And you can say that one to another with boldness and courage and strength and humility and softness and sorrow. But with victory in your hearts. Where are you going to get a hope like that? Where are you going to get a story that ends like that? Where are you going to get strength in a time of weakness like this? It's right here. It's the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits of all those who belong to Him, who along with Him will be raised to life one day. Victorious grieving. And secondly, victorious trash-talking. Look at verse 55 and 56. Paul is quoting from Hosea in the Old Testament, chapter 13. And he's using this language of victory where he knows the end is coming and he says, well, one day when death finally does die and we're given new indestructible life, Then we'll be able to say to death, taunting death, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Or, in modern terms, what you got? (laughs) You got nothing. Nothing on us. Nothing on me. It's almost like Paul is pulling out some uh, your mama jokes or something. Trash talking in defiance against the present power of death, which one day will be no more. What can it look like for you, for me to live daily with a holy taunt of death? Ongoing in our words and in our actions, where we are waving small flags of victory against the effects of death and the reality of death. Everywhere it looks like death has won and where death thinks it won, but we know that it has not and it will not. So maybe it's not letting yourself slip back into that mentality of being enslaved by the fear of death. And you say, Where, O oh, death, is your victory. Or maybe you don't let your heart just shrug off with indifference, a shooting in the neighborhood, or a homicide, a loss of life, just shrugging it off as normal, but you hear it as it is that what it really is, and that is a tragedy, and a terrible thing. And you say in your heart, but maybe also with your actions and the way that you engage the lost lives and the community, you say, Where O oh death is your victory. There's a different end to the story here. Or maybe you yourself are a health professional, or maybe just battling sickness and illness and disease yourself with faith. Then all the ways that you care for your patients or the sick people around you or your own physical body, the ways in which you can turn and say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? I'm living in light of the coming victory. What you got, death. You've got nothing on me, on us. Or if it's ministry to the elderly. Or maybe when you feel this nervous drive to accomplish everything in the span of a few years or decades. Or, or travel everywhere or to do everything. And maybe you're able to settle down and change the way that you spend or prioritize your time or money or energy. Because you know or at least are coming to know that even with death it's not the end. And you quiet your frenetic nerves, your fears, your anxious heart, and you say, Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your victory? And where maybe even in the places that we live or the places that we move around in, in the neighborhood or the city, not just avoiding crime ridden places, getting around them, but maybe actually working to improve them. Not just for the peace and the safety of ourselves and our families, but for others. And maybe even at cost and risk incurred to ourselves. Moving into places or moving through places or engaging lives and parts of life where we are saying with our loving actions and our presence, where, oh death, is your victory. You got no victory because one day... Someday death will die. Let's pray. Jesus, we agree with your word with a holy, humble defiance. That you have rewritten the final chapter of the story of human history, of all of our stories for those who belong to you, who are found in you. And oh God would this reality of resurrection this promise found in the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits of all those who too along with him will be raised to indestructible life to help our hearts to embrace this promise this truth and then change our lives and unleash a revolution in our lives with respect to death in the ways we grapple with the effects of death. Do that in our lives. Do that in our church. Do that in our neighborhood. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.